0: As I said a little bit ago, I had a difficult time getting this all arranged today, and I'm hoping it comes out in a coherent fashion. We'll find out. We're going to begin in 2 Kings chapter 13, which is a, uh, we were going to get there last week, but we didn't quite hit it. And we're going to talk about Joash's reign. 2 Kings 13, starting in verse 10. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, and you can say those the the same name too, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 16 years. He also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not depart from all the sins of jeroboam the son of nebat which he made israel to sin but he walked in them so after in 16 years of reigning in israel this is what the lord says about joash first thing we notice is the sins of jeroboam that began years earlier had a long lasting and a very negative impact and what were the sins of jeroboam well he made two golden calves. He set up worship areas in Samaria so people wouldn't want to go to 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 Jerusalem to worship because he thought if they did that, he would lose his kingdom. So he brought in false worship. <clears throat> and then in verse 12, we see, Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did and the might which he fought against Amaziah, the king of Judah, are they not written in the book of, of the chronicles of the kings of Israel so he slept with his fathers and Jeroboam sat on his throne, that is Jeroboam the second doesn't say that but that's, there's two of them that's Jeroboam the second and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel, so we see the conflicts that they had with Amaziah the king of Judah so they were having an internal civil war and we're going to see more into that in a little bit But that's it. That's what Joash, you know, it's not a very good summation of 16 years of leading a country. We're going to see that he wasn't alone in that. And then in verse 14, we see one thing that Joash did. So this is a reflection back on something he did back in his 16-year reign. And I find some of this thing very interesting. Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die. So Elisha was getting old. We're going we're to conclude the life of Elisha today. Joash, the king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. So in the last days of Elisha, Joash went down to see him. So Joash knew about Elisha. And Joash had thought highly of Elisha. Even though he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, he knew about Elisha and some of the things, at least, if not all of them, that Elisha had done in the past that we have recorded. He also understands that Elisha is a prophet of God. And when he learned of Elisha's health, we don't know how he learned, but he found out about it. He went to visit him, and he, when he arrived, it said he wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Now Matthew Henry noted this about Joash on this passage. He says, This was an evidence of some good in him. In that he had value and affection for a faithful prophet. So he was trying to did what Jeroboam did. They worship God a little bit and worship false God. They worship falsely a little bit. <clears throat> Matthew Henry went on so far as he was, so, so far was he from hating and persecuting him as a troubler of Israel, which some of the kings did that he loved and honored Elisha as one of the greatest blessings of his kingdom and lamented the loss of him. Observe here, when the king heard of Elisha's sickness, he came to visit him and to receive his dying counsel and blessing. So he had this affection for Elisha. And then we turn to 2 Kings 2.12. The passage tells us that Elisha, and we went through Elijah, we, we, we went through this a few months ago, was taken up into, a, into heaven by a whirlwind. Elisha didn't die. He was, ca- he was captured into heaven. And we read right after Elisha went up into heaven in the whirlwind, after Elijah did, Elisha's immediate response was this. He saw it, and this is in 2 Kings 2.12, he saw it, And cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And that's the same weeping that Joash said before Elisha. My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. So the title that Elisha gave to Elijah is now the same title that Joash gives to Elisha. And it appears that Joash was indeed in true sorrow due to the passing of Elisha. I just find that very interesting. Even though he wasn't following God, he still thought that much of Elisha. And he obviously must have known something about Elijah, I would think, to come up with that same title. We don't know. That's all speculation. Then Elisha, before he died, he gave Joash two commands in verses fifteen to nineteen. <clears throat> First, in verse fifteen, and Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows, then he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow, and he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. <clears throat> and he said, Open the window eastward, and And he opened it. And Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory and the arrow of victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. So Elisha said, you're going to have victory over Syria. So God used Elisha again to help a king and a nation that was not following him in the way that they were instructed but he's still going to allow them to have victory. Because remember, we just read earlier that Joash did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But God's still going to give him some blessing. And Elisha proclaims that God will provide the victory over Syria. And I've got to imagine that would have been pretty welcome news for those in Israel. Who had been controlled by Syria for quite a while at this time. The second thing that Elisha told him starts in verse 18. And he said, Take the arrows, and he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground with them. And he struck the ground three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. So at first the reading seems a little strange to us. One commentator claims that the translation is better uh, to say that Elisha told him to shoot arrows into the ground. Which would be similar to the shooting of the arrow of verse 13. And another commentator says, it's kind of a strange thing to ask. You know, take these arrows and shoot them in the ground. I've read through a few explanations as to why Joash just struck three, or drew three arrows, and why stopping at three angered Elisha, but it's really hard to know why. The fact that Elisha was angry with Joash for just using three shows me that for some reason Joash should have known to keep going. He should have gone and struck five or six arrows. But he didn't. The conclusion is they would have some success over Syria three times, but the success would not be the end of it. And we find that that's exactly what happened the next thing we see starting in verse 20 and it's a very um, quick passage is Elisha's death but something very interesting happened here and it shows that God was with Elisha, verse 20 and 21 this would be a great movie plot too by the way so Elisha died and they buried him that's it, okay now bands of Moabites used to invade, to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Whoa. God was showing that He was with Elisha. It's quite a story, and it demonstrates God's power and that Elisha was His prophet. A guy named Eli, uh, B, B. Long wrote this. As he was a man of power in his life, or as he was a man of power on his life, moving and persuasive, even in stories told about him so now his awesome powers continue working in death confirming the prophet and foreshadowing the victory to come and I would hasten to say Elisha didn't have any of those powers it was God who had the power God used Elisha but it was the power of God who did those things so that God would be glorified through Elisha and that's the end of Elisha going on in 2 kings 13 to 25 we have the defeat of syria and again elisha had just shown Joash that this defeat was going to take place <clears throat> now hazael king of syria oppressed israel all the days of jehoahaz but the lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them and he turned toward them because of his covenant with abraham isaac and jacob and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. When Hazael, king of Syria, died, he was the one that had this grip over Israel, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. Now this is Ben-Hadad the third. Okay, we talked about two other Ben-Hadads earlier. This is the third. When then Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again from Ben-Hadad the son of Hazael, the cities that he had taken from Jehoahaz, his father in war. Three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. Now under normal circumstances, Hazael probably would have finished off Israel as we look back uh, historically. All the pieces were in place for Syria to do that. But it hadn't occurred yet because of the Lord's grace, His compassion, His concern, and His covenant faithfulness. The Lord refused to give Israel over to Syria despite all they had done in their sin and rebellion and their false worship. The only reason Israel was to be successful against Syria was God's intervention. And God used as his intervention a little country that was starting to gain a little prominence called Assyria now if we go to chapter 14 we read starting from chapter 14 all the way through chapter 17 what's called what you could call the disintegration of Israel as we're going to cover in the next few chapters of 2nd Kings we are not going to see a nation that turns to God. And this is true even though God gave them victory three times over the Syrians. But we do have the emergence of a major international power that will begin to impact both Israel and Judah. And because both nations have difficulty following God, both Israel and Judah have difficulty following God, there will come a time when God will judge them through these powers for their disobedience and for their false worship. And you know, we are you know how that applies to us today, we'll see. But we have a nation that doesn't worship God. Now we're not Israel. But this reminds me a little bit of these international powers that God will judge them, but it wasn't the power of Assyria that made the victory. It was God allowing them to have victory. Because you can look at other events recorded in scripture where Israel was very weak but had victory. And one example is in Judges 6 where we have the victory of Gideon with his army of 300 people destroying the Midianites. There's a phrase I believe I did some research on it a little bit and I think it started with a guy named Frederick Douglass and he had this quote one and God make a majority and you have probably heard it now Frederick Douglass you can thank him for coming up with that but what looms in the future is the rising of the Assyrian Empire under a man named Til- Tiglath Peleser III, and he reigned from 745 to 727 BC. And in this time, he consolidated and centralized and significantly expanded the Assyrian Empire. And we will see in these chapters that his successor, in these upcoming chapters, a guy named the V, will overrun Israel. He'll destroy Samaria, and he'll send the people into exile. Now, before we get on how that impacted Israel and then Judah, the first major incident that impacted was the rise of the Assyrians against Syria. And they were able to defeat Syria in 802 B.C. Now, Hazael, who we just read about died in 806 BC so Isaiah had been dead for four years and now you have the Assyrians coming down against Syria against Ben Hadad the third and was the time that Israel could go up and grab those cities back because Assyria was hounding them from the north <clears throat> well I wanted to take just a little just a few seconds here so we don't get confused between Assyria and Syria because they're two different two totally different groups of people Assyria I put a a note in your notes here was a collection of United City States that existed from 900 to 600 BC which grew through warfare they were aided by iron weapons iron was a lot more uh, strong than, a lot more strong, that's not good English, a lot stronger than brass, what a lot of countries were using, the iron could really grab them and, and, and be effective. They were located in the northern part of Mesopotamia, which corresponds to the most parts of modern-day Iraq, as well as parts of Iran, Kuwait, Syria, and Turkey, They were the first in the area to develop iron weapons, which were superior to bronze. Their skill at ironworking allowed them to make weapons and protective items cheaply so that more soldiers could use them. Instead of having just the king have all the good stuff, a lot of their army could have the good stuff. They were the first army to have a separate engineering unit that would set up ladders and ramps and fill in moats and dig tunnels to help the soldiers get into walled cities because that's how they tried to get there you know they, they would seize the city but they had things that would help them get into those cities and it's capital city from 706 to 612 BC is the city you've heard of called Nineveh and that's where the book of Jonah comes into play now, Syria is also called Aram, or the land of the Arameans. The country is kind of a buffer between Canaan and Turkey over its history. Its borders stop with the Amanus Mountains and the begin in the northern limits of the country. Syria borders the eastern part of the Sea of Galilee. And it lands uh, east, Damascus is the principal city of Syria. It also extended in the north over to the Mediterranean Sea. And so that is Syria. So Assyria, it kind of sits up to the top and over to the east of Syria. And uh, you probably all knew that, but I thought it's worthwhile just to kind of make sure we have those things solid as we're getting into here talking about both Syria and Assyria. Now, Israel got into their bad state by a long-term refusal to worship God. And God had been patient. He had told them what would happen if they did not follow him. And on your notes is a chart that I put together on to try to give a visual picture of how the kings performed in following God in both Judah and Israel. And you look at that, uh, that chart there, and I put it God's rating. It doesn't matter what man's rating was. This is what God thought of all these kings. And you can see that in Israel, the northern kingdom evil was pretty much the standard fare. Like every time. The only one that I don't know about is Tibni, and Shalom. Because it doesn't say. And Shalom, he reigned for a month. Okay? So, pretty pretty evil on this whole side. And then I put the reference where you can go read and say this king did evil in the sight of God or this king did not follow uh, God or Those types of things. Now, in Joash's battle, now the next thing we see is that in 2 Kings 14, Judah battled Israel. We had this civil war. And Joash of Israel was the ruler who ended Syria's dominance and Amaziah who was the king of Judah came into power when his father was murdered so Amaziah became the king you can see his father was Joash and we also have Joash down to the right at the same time frame it's J-E-H-O-S-H on the Israel side don't get Joash the father of Amaziah get confused with Joash the king of Israel they're two different people, and we see in in Second uh, Kings four, fourteen, the first one. It says, "In the second year, Joash, son of Joahaz, uh, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, the king of Judah, began to reign. He was twenty-five years old when he began to reign, and he reigned twenty-nine years." in Jerusalem his mother's name was Jehoadin of Jerusalem and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord yet not like David his father he did all the things as Joash his father had done but the high places were not removed we talked about that last week and people still sacrificed and made offerings on high places they weren't supposed to do that supposed to make your offerings at the temple As soon as the royal power was firmly in his hand, he struck down his servants who had struck down the king, his father. So he murdered the people that murdered his father. But he did not put to death the children of the murderers according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, where the Lord commanded, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, neither children to put to death because of their fathers, but each shall die for his own sin. And he struck down, and this is the this is the one thing that Joash did that was positive. He struck down ten thousand Edomites in the valley of Salt and took Sela by storm and called it Jothkeel, which is his name to this day. So this is the summary of, of the reign. Excuse me, of Ahaziah, and he punished those who killed his father. I think I said Joash a minute ago. I didn't mean that. Erase that. And then we see this military victory. Then we see something that's pretty interesting starting in verse 8. Then, I, then after he had this, this victory down in Edom, he sent messengers to Joash, son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, Come, let us look one another in the face. And Joash, the king of Israel, sent word to Amaziah, king of Judah, a thistle on Lebanon sent to a cedar on Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to my son for a wife. And a wild beast of Lebanon passed by and trampled down the thistle. You have indeed struck down Edom, and your heart has lifted you up. In other words, yeah, you got this one victory against Edom, so you think you're pretty hot stuff. You are not be content with your glory and stay at home for why should you provoke trouble so that you will fall and Judah fall with you now when I first started reading this I said let us look one another in the face that's a formal challenge okay it's not hey let's get together for lunch that's not what that was about it is to say let's try our strength in battle We aren't told why. We don't know what Amaziah's purpose was. But Joash's response chides him for his pride and compares him to a mere thistle trying to take down a tree as strong as the tree in Lebanon. Joash persisted in calling for the battle. Verse 11. But Amaziah would not listen. So Joash, the king of Israel, went up. He and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced one another in a battle at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was defeated by Israel, and every man fled to his home. And Joash, the king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Joash, son of Ahaziah, at Beth Shemesh and came to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem for 400 cubits. So they broke into Jerusalem from the Ephraim gate to the corner gate and he seized all the gold and silver and all the vessels that were found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house also hostages and he returned to Samaria. So Israel beat the tar out of them. Okay? and Joash tried to say hey stay away and he said no i'm gonna come after you anyway and he was soundly defeated and remember it says they took all the gold and silver and the vessels found in the house of the lord and all the treasuries of the king's house and also hostages just last week we talked about the king that was trying to repair the temple and put all those things back in well guess what they got taken out again and that's it. That's what we have about Ahaziah. Now, this is where things got a little tricky for me on how we're going to do this going forward. I hope it makes sense. What you have here is the summarizations or the summations of these kings. Because <clears throat> if you start going in kings, 2 Kings 14 all the way through 2 Kings 17 pretty much we have the summations of different kings 2nd Kings 14, 15 and 16 is the sum of the reign of Joash in Israel and Joash did evil in the sight of the Lord the next few verses is the reign of Jeroboam II in Israel in verses 23 to 28 and it says that Jeroboam did evil in the sight of the Lord, and then he was buried. And then we go to the reign of Amaziah in Judah. And Amaziah did something that was right in the in in the Lord's eyes, because he wasn't he, he was he was not probably what we would call a good ruler necessarily, but he wasn't uh, he, he was following God in his worship. Then we have Zechariah in 2 King, Kings 5, 8-12. to Zechariah did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then we have Shalom, who did reign for a whole month. And then we have the reign of Manahem in Israel, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And one other thing that Manahem did, the only thing that we know, is that he exacted money from Israel, that is, from all the wealthy men, 50 shekels of silver from every man to give to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria turned back and did not stay there in the land. So he paid a bounty. So he would go to all the people that had money in the land and say, give me your money. If you don't, Assyria is going to come and wipe us out. Okay, here it is. And they paid him off. Well, anybody that kind of understands how that works, is that's just a temporary fix until Assyria wants more. And then in 1 Kings 15, 23, we have the summation of the reign of Pekiah. And it was evil. And then in 2 Kings 15, 27 to 31, we have the summation of Pekah, which was evil. And then in 2 Kings 15, 32 to 38, we have the summation of Jotham in Judah. And Jotham did what was right in the sight of the Lord. But we don't have much more. I mean, maybe one sentence about it. And then in 2 Kings sixteen one to 4 we have the summation of the reign of Ahaz. And Ahaz, or Ahaziah, you might have that there on your list, same person. He did what was not right or evil in the sight of the Lord. And we're going to get into Ahaz's reign a little bit. And then in 2 Kings seventeen one to 5 we have the summation of the reign of Hosea in Israel, which was evil. So we see on the Israel side, basically every king from Jeroboam on down was evil. And sometimes it will say, and this guy was more evil than than his father. And this guy was more evil than that. And what made them evil? It wasn't their physical policies. It wasn't anything to do with operating the government. They were evil because they did not follow the Lord and I would say as Jim said this morning we have evil rulers today in America why? because they spend more than they take in yeah, maybe they do but that's not what makes it evil what makes it evil is they do not follow the Lord and a lot of them will say well I'm a Christian I believe this but I also believe this other stuff I'm a Christian because I think that gets me votes but I'm really not following the Lord. And that's what we have. And that's what they had in Israel. Now in 2 Kings 16, 1 to 20, we have we, we, we had this list of all these kings, and they just, you know, one sentence or something about what they did. And then we get to Ahaz, and we have a much broader statement of what he did. And that's in Second Kings sixteen. And Ahaz was a king in Judah, not a king in Israel. It says in the seventeenth year, this is Second Kings sixteen one. In the seventeenth year of Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. And Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father has done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Now we just saw this whole list over here of how evil the kings of Israel were. So he's in that camp. Here we go. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places remember a lot of the kings even the ones that did right were criticized for not getting rid of the high places that's because they would come in and do even worse things on the high places than offering uh, sacrifices to God they were offering sacrifices to false deities <clears throat> he made offerings on the high places and on the hills and over, under every green tree now Ahaz's reign began when he was 20 years old and I'm not going to get into all the details because you look at some of the dates that we have on our list they don't tie in the way we think they should That's because Ahad was a co-regent with Jotham for about three years and a sole sovereign for the remainder. Now, as I read this and as you read this, we cannot imagine what would cause a father to burn his son as an offering to God, a false god. Especially with this being so opposed to the laws of God that he would have been somewhat familiar with. This may have been to the god Molech, but we can't be certain. And I know there's a lot of movies that, you know, they, they'll use Molech as one of the bad gods. And every time I see one of those movies that talk about Molech or, you know, doing these things, it, it, it just makes me feel uneasy, you know, because people really did that. It's, it's not just in the movies. People were really sacrificing their sons. You know, belief in false religions can lead and does lead to some very bizarre acts. And this shows that. Now, Paul House points out that this sacrifice may have coincided with threats from Pekah or Rezin, the king of Syria. And offering the sacrifices on the high hills under every green tree shows a desperation Hoping that some god will help, I'm going to offer this sacrifice here. I'm going to go offer sacrifices here. I'm just try. I'm 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 covering every base with my false, uh, or with my false worship, or with with my worship of false gods. Of course, he rejected going to the true god, the only god who could offer true help. Now, some commentators think that Ahaz offered these sacrifices out of compulsion that he was forced to, but it's all speculation. And we'll see why they might have done that. But then we get to verse (coughs) 5. Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, so he had Syria and Israel, partnering up, and came to wage war on Jerusalem. And they besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer him. And at that time, Reason, the king of Syria, recovered Elath for Syria, and drove the men of Judah from Elath. And the Edomites came to Elath, where they dwell to this day. Now, Elath was a port city on the Red Sea that Amaziah had taken from the Syrians earlier. Now he lost it. Verse 7, so Ahaz sent messengers to Tilgath-Peleser, king of Assyria. So now we have Assyria coming into play. We have Syria and Israel coming down on Judah. And so the king of Judah sends a message to the king of Assyria. He says, I am your servant and your son. In other words... I'll do whatever you want. Come up here and rescue me from the hand of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and the treasure of the king house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him and the king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it and carried its people captive to Kir and he killed Rezin. So you see a little bit of this International intrigue in play here. Now Ahaz does not respond to the attacks by Israel and Assyria by turning to God. Instead he turned to Assyria and gave them a large fortune for coming to help them. Now, here's where some of the struggle I had comes into play here. During this time, there was a guy that we've all heard of, very active in Israel. His name was Isaiah. Isaiah was the prophet in Israel at this time. And the narrative given here in 2 Kings is very brief. But we have an explosion of this narrative in Isaiah chapter 7. So let's turn to Isaiah 7. And I didn't have this on your notes um, if you were here when I taught through Isaiah about five years ago, you might remember some of this stuff. If you're like me, I forgot it all. I had to reread it. Verse 1 of Isaiah 7. And this is, this is a cool passage. And we won't go through the full hour of Isaiah 7. We'll just hit some high points. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz. Ooh, same guy the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Arab, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. This is what we just read. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, The Arameans, the Arameans are the Syrians, have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees Of the forest shake with the wind. This means they were scared out of their gourd. Okay, it is just an absolute shaking. They they are, oh, we're doomed. We're done. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, "Go out now and meet Ahaz. You and your son." Share Jeshub at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. So God is sending Isaiah to this pro to this king who is not following him. Okay? And verse 4: And say to him, Take care and be calm and have no fear, and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands. So what's God say? That Syria and Isaiah have power, uh, Syria and Israel have for, for power. They are stubs of smoldering firebrands. In other words, you know, nothing. On account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, because Aram with Ephraim, the son of Remelia, has planned every evil against you, saying, "Let us go up against Jerusalem and terrorize it." and make for ourselves a breach in its walls, and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. So they intended to stop the Davidic rule, put this son of Tabil, and take over Jerusalem, and take over Judah. Verse 7, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Razim. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remelia. You will not believe. You will surely not last. In other words, God says, I'm going to take care of this. So in this setting, Isaiah is asked to go meet with Ahaz. Even though Ahaz has been unfaithful to God, God says, Calm down. Everything's going to be fine. Have no fear. Be not faint-hearted. The two nations are called, as we said, two stubs of smoldering fire. In other words, their strength is almost gone. Smoldering fire isn't going to turn into a big fire. It's just going to die out. Now, compared to God, for sure, they don't have any strength, even if they thought they were strong. So God states through Isaiah that his attack will not last. Now let's go and see what God continues to do in verse 10. Again, we're going going through this pretty fast. Then the Lord spake to Ahaz saying, The Lord spoke to Ahaz. Isaiah sitting there. Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord God. Make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Wow. What sign do you want, Ahaz? That what I just said was going to happen is going to happen. Ask anything. And Ahaz, what did he say? I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Well, that's not testing the Lord. That's following his direction. Then he said, listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men, that you will try the patience of of my God as well. Then we have an incredible prophecy in Isaiah 7, 14. Now you see where it all came from. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time He knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on your father's house such days have never come since the days of Ephraim, separated from Judah the king of Assyria. God asks Ahaz for a sign. And he says well why would I not I won't test the Lord it really wasn't Be I, Ahaz didn't say that because he was interested in his spiritual state before God he wasn't following God anyway he was a skeptic a doubter an unbeliever he worshipped false gods God was asking Ahaz to demonstrate faith in him he was willing to let Ahaz begin to trust him but Ahaz failed He would rather trust his alliance with Assyria, who he could see, than in a God who he could not see. So he claims that he would not test God. But we must be clear, asking for a sign was not testing God. Obeying God is never testing God. God never asks anyone to believe blindly. You know, one of the great truths about Christianity in which every other religion I've looked at fails is that Christian the Christian trusts in a God we have not seen, but there are plenty of displays to His truthfulness in nature, in history, in life application of His Word. We can go and we can look at the consistent teaching of Christianity all the way through, and it's consistent. We're not trusting in mysticism out there faith rests upon historical facts that are known knowing that God can and will continue to operate within his established attributes but Ahaz wouldn't do it in spite of that God still provides a sign and that sign is not just for Ahaz it is for the world behold a virgin will conceive and will be with child and she will call his name Emmanuel so God is saying to Ahaz that he is not asking for him to believe just because Isaiah said it but he's going to put a foundation underneath it a supernatural sign so he would know the message was from God and that's where we get Isaiah 14 So the sign is a sign of deliverance. And what did Jesus bring? Deliverance. The sign of a birth that was unique and extremely significant. The word was used to draw attention to the announcement. A virgin, a son, Emmanuel, which means God with us. He is present with the people, and the coming one will sit upon his throne. The Emmanuel cannot be applied to anyone but God. So this verse is a crystal clear reference to the coming of Jesus Christ. So Isaiah in verse 17, he continues to speak to Ahaz, but he announces in verse 17... That a punishment will come upon Ahaz and his house. Because Ahab had refused to obey God in rejecting his command to ask for a sign. Therefore God chose the sign and that sign was the coming Messiah, Emmanuel, who will bring salvation to his people and to the world, to the believers. Ahaz was not going to bring the salvation. Instead, what's Ahaz going to get? He's going to get Assyria as he had been seeking an alliance, but it's not going to be a good thing for the nation. Assyria's alliance was not going to be benefit. Punishment will come with Assyria, not peace. And that real quickly is a little more of the detail behind Ahaz and that alliance with Assyria and kind of how it all fits together. You still don't see how those sieges could have been very good if they're sending people with all that gold and silver out of the city up to Assyria. You know, they're sending people out of Jerusalem to go up to Assyria with all this gold and silver. And the, and the Syrians and the Israelites didn't stop. Them. Yeah, how'd they do it? Yeah, how'd, how'd they get all the gold up there? I have no idea. No, it's... It, there's a lot of things when we read the history how how did this all happen you know and uh, a lot of things like that you know how did that one king last for six and a half miles after he was kind of mortally wounded where he got to Jezreel or something and then he died but this is the part of Ahaz that is in Isaiah chapter 7 that we don't get to read about in 2nd Kings (laughs) probably next week we'll go back to um, Psalms Um, Psalm 120 by the way outside of Psalm 119 but all that's really left for Israel and, and Judah at this point, and we'll get to it, is Israel is going to be captured by Assyria. And they're going to be splattered. And Assyria is going to bring in other people, other people groups to live in Samaria, in Israel. And they're going to bring in all of their gods. Assyria is going to try to let them believe in their god too. They're going to send a priest back so they can believe in their god. It's going to be a mess. And you can see from your your notes here that, if I can find that again, Ahaziah or Aziah reigned from 730 to 715. There's a big big line underneath. Ahaz or Ahaziah and that's because that is really where the, Israel, the the kingdom of Israel ceased. So you can see that there's three, six, eight kings that lasted after Israel went away and at the, at set, this is the same time that, that uh, Assyria is going to come in and basically destroy Israel as a nation. But Judah is going to keep on for another 125 years or so. We're going to hang on. And there's going to be some good kings that we're going to hear about. Uh, The next one that Israel is going to have is Hezekiah. And Hezekiah is going to do some very interesting things. And one thing you're going to find out when we Study Hezekiah is what he did and how God defeated the Assyrians when he went to God for help, rather than trying to be this vassal state of Assyria. But we'll get to that sometime down the road. Let's pray. Yes, go ahead. On this Isaiah passage on fourteen. Uh huh. You uh-huh. might have said that, I might have been. What is the time frame on that? Is, what is the, the, date? the date that Isaiah did that was about seven hundred and ten BC. Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Seven fifteen, right in there somewhere. Does someone else have a question? Okay, let's pray.